Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting materials and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Today's interviewee is Dr. Gabriel Vekamus from the Faculty of Languages and Cultures at Kyushu University. How are you today, Gabriel? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. The article that we're going to be looking at is Art, Censorship and Nuclear Warfare. And as you might expect from a complex title, the writer of it has somewhat of an interesting background as well. I mean, of all my friends, you've probably got one of the most interesting professional and uh, academic histories. So could you give us a short introduction to the places you've worked and what kind of inspired you to produce this kind of work? Oh, all right. Um, I worked in many museums and also did uh, academic research. The museums I worked for were uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Guggenheim as well, essentially in New York, but also in Bilbao and the Peggy Guggenheim Collection in Venice. And then I did my PhD in the United Kingdom at Goldsmiths College, and then I ended up in Fukuoka. Uh, somehow. What drew you towards the nuclear art? Oh, so this is like probably any other <laughs> research, a bit by accident. When I was at the Peggy Guggenheim collection in Venice, I came across a book uh, somebody pointed to, to me uh, or brought it to my attention. It was an exhibition catalogue about a group of Italian artists called the uh, Nucleare, uh, which means the nuclear. And the group itself was really called that way. And their uh, goal was to uh, depict in painting the nuclear age. So the, it was some sort of, some sort of drippings and, and exploding uh, forms all over the canvas. And the group was very, very active and also included some French members such as Yves Klein. So I was shocked by this. I was surprised by why this group is forgotten and also everything about the nuclear age was forgotten. And at the time, I was interested into the connection between art and science and everybody was talking about biotechnology. It was the trend at the time. And I thought that among this kind of very contemporary things, because it was very high tech, uh, they, I thought that the connection between art and science uh, should involve some kind of art hist historical connection as well, not just the contemporary, the new, new, new. And then after this, when I started researching, the more I, sta I started kind of scratching or digging under the on, on the surface, the more things came up from the Cold War, from Hiroshima Nagasaki, from Chernobyl, and then Fukushima happened. Uh, my, my archive went like a lot uh, bigger. <laughs> it's unexpected. Hmm. But that's, that's, that's the origin was the Piggy Guggenheim collection. What is classed as the nuclear age? When did that begin? Oh, that's a very good question, actually, because, and that's also what I've been trying to do with my book. Usually, the atomic age is uh, believed to start in 1945 after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, which, which makes sense. 
But in my book, I try to start at Marie Curie's time, in fact, and not just because I'm French. <laughs> it could be, it could be, but I don't want to bring it all back to the French. But I thought that by looking at uh, medicine, it was another way to say that there are different ways to understand nuclear age and what uh, all nuclear applications, all this thing about the Cold War in which atom for peace and atom for war, it, it, this came up in the Cold War, but it, it was already there because the real uh, atom for peace is, is medicine, mm. uh, treatment for cancer. For me, the atomic age starts with uh, the discovery of radium. But very early on, there was some disasters as well at that time. As I write in a paper, on censorship, which you mentioned earlier. Yes, I mean, you do note in your introduction here that it was the accident at Fukushima which kind of rekindled an interest in this art, uh, not just for you, but for others as well. And also, I think, because this disaster is occurring in a time of perhaps less censorship and less political need to cover up the work that has been done, for example, in well, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and also in the Pacific as well. Perhaps it was a time when more materials could become available. Yes. So Fukushima, I write about this in my book as well. Censorship and Fukushima. I mean, that's not a title of the of the book, but a part in the, in 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 the book. In fact, uh, contrary even to Chernobyl, uh, we had the opposite effect of of like cover up at first. Mm. Uh, there was like a saturation of information mm. um, because of social media and, and Twitter and people were, were kind of sharing information sometimes without checking information. And there was like an overload or saturation and that people people were at a loss, I think. So I think the cover up would uh, have been impossible at that time. Mm. Uh, however, there was a different form of, uh, let's say, yes, I, I, I guess I could say censorship as well. But what I find very interesting is that today we don't talk about it anymore. The problem is still there. Mm. It's, it's, there is no solution as of yet, like for Chernobyl, and it's going to take time and there's still an exclusion zone, but it has become very quiet in the media. So I think the whether it was a strategy by the uh, Shinzo Abe's um, government or not, or if it was like a self-censorship from the media, uh, gradually we went from like saturation to uh, absolutely nothing. Mm. And now I think that uh, with the virus, we have even less. And also at the same time, what I was questioning also, the question I was asking in my book was also that now that there is this, this nuclear disaster happening and and I can really say that there's been like a, an overwhelming number of artworks that were done not just by Japanese artists but by artists all over the world about Fukushima then this create another kind of layer of uh, information putting in in the shadow of former ones the ones about uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the ones about uh, Oceania. So they, it's, it's troubling, I think, that by wanting to talk about the subject, we are putting in the shadow other uh, traumas, of nuclear traumas as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about those uh, from 
the examples that you have in your paper. I was interested to read about writers such as uh, Ota Yoko and the work that she was doing in Hiroshima, because at the time that she was writing, and this is 1948, I was interested to read that the MacArthur administration was able to censor this work specifically, even though the previous year, 1947, was when the constitution was written and freedom of the press was guaranteed. Uh, but immediately that is being tested by the works coming out of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That is something that was very surprising for me to learn, is that so many works were, were censored. In the book, I, I write about this in greater uh, details, but that sometimes the censorship was very loose, as things would go through the cracks, and sometimes it would be very strict. I think there was also a lot of self-censorship on the part of, of the Japanese artists, also because in the 1930s, there was this case of communist writer who got beaten down by the police to death. He was killed by the police for being, for having his freedom of speech. So I think uh, there was a lot of this. But for Otayoko, what is very surprising is that they have censored a part of her book, a, a, an entire chapter, which is de was dedicated to, how to say, scientific reports. And pre when they broadcasted on radio broadcast about censorship and, and the atomic bomb, was that only scientific information would circulate. So it is really strange. And she writes about it herself, that she, the, 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 her, when she met with the uh, censorship officers, they were, uh, it was completely surreal, uh, that everything went the opposite way, but that she finally managed to publish, even if it was partial, they cut off one, one chapter. Some, some artists like her, pushed and succeeded in, in publishing things, but there were few. And when the censorship was lifted, and I think this speaks volumes as well, uh, when the censorship was finally lifted in 1952, uh, even one or two years before, uh, it, it was loose. It started to get really loose. So many, so many works uh, were published and, and images, not just literature or poetry or songs. It was also pictures. I mean, photography that, that were circulated. And what I find very surprising as well is that when I started digging into this archive, which is there in, in Japan, in, in the atom bomb museum in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's wide in, in the open is that these images are still not circulating in, in the West. And I was very surprised by that. So I would say that even though the censorship was lifted, the, the, the effect is lasting. I think you highlight two reasons for that, two possible reasons why the West didn't have as much interest in the works that were coming out of Japan. First of all, that it was the Americans and you know, complicitly uh, UK, who decided that this was going to be the correct method to end the war in the Pacific. And so they don't want to be reminded of the consequences of their decision. And the producers of it uh, were at the time still associated with their alliance with Nazi Germany. And therefore, it could be possibly ignored as works produced by a former enemy. I would also add that, um, and, yeah, the, and then there was one more thing, which was that the Cold War started. 
and so the the focus shifted from from Japan to Oceania, I think. As soon as there was the um, the boat incident, um, the Lucky Dragon incident, uh, so I think that, that that also participated as well. I would say also that seeing it from a nation like France, that because they uh, realized that they would need to have this nuclear power, that there was a little bit uh, of the same, like, um, let's say, not encouraging scholarship or circulation of these images uh, since they wanted to actually have the bomb as well. So I think it was like, yeah, a, a project on the long run to keep them out of sight. So I would say in between nationalism on one hand, especially in the U.S., and on the other hand, um, um, the, the the prospect of of building the bomb or more bombs in the Pacific. One of the themes running through your work is that women and children are disproportionately affected. Particularly a problem in Oceania because the Pacific Islands tend to be matrilineal, and therefore the females in the society are held in that much higher regard. Yes, so that's two two different points, I think, mm. but they're connected. The uh, so shifting to Oceania, so the main uh, artist I uh, or poets I've, I've wrote about is a. Uh, Kathy Jetnil Kijner, and uh, she, in a very strong uh, yet very small book of poetry, talk about the effect of the atomic bomb along with other problems in Oceania. But when she writes about the atomic bomb, and to give an idea of what it is, she writes about how women uh, suffered mis- miscarriages massively. There's an, a poem which is called Monster, uh, which is very strong, in which she talks about how, who is the monster at the end. Uh, when we uh, look at this, the effect of the of the miscarriages there, uh, the, and and at the same time, the uh, the she shifts between the monster being the the, the one dropping the bombs. Uh, but the effect of the miscarriages, and this is maybe difficult to hear, but if we don't, if we keep it taboo, then we participate to this censorship. The effect of the miscarriages, this is what is called the jellyfish babies. So the babies are born, sometimes even alive, still alive, but they have no heads or, or no hands or, or uh, only one eye. And they are called jellyfish babies. They die very quickly. Now, you would say this is uh, something from the past and, and this happened and then we have to move on. But the fact is that miscarriages still happen today in the Marshall Islands in a higher number. And on the top of this, uh, children also die of leukemia, essentially girls. This is something she writes about in her book as well. And it's something I found also in uh, the French Polynesia after the uh, test in, in um, Moruroa. And this thing about the, uh, the, the, the leukemia and the children dying, essentially girls, is, is there. It's still there. It's still a problem today. And Polynesia also has matrilineal societies. And in these societies, the uh, status of women is, is more than, than patriarchal societies, is higher, more respected. Uh, and also there is a connection with nature. 
which is very strong and that we do not have anymore, I think. And this double thing is very strange for me. And that's what I've tried to put in my article together is that at the moment in the West, we are just so strong in fighting uh, sexism and, and global warming. And this is, this is what people are do massively. But there are societies in which, in which these two elements are natural, if I can say so. They're already there. You go on to talk about the concept of biopower and how one of the ways that the West has been traditionally in control of other parts of the world has been through control of their resources. That, that is a nice way of putting it, actually. The, the, no, the notion of biopower somehow uh, was taken from uh, Michel Foucault, the French philosopher from the book Discipline and Punish. Sorry, I had the French uh, title in mind. Discipline and, and Punish. And the book itself was really about how the jail system, carceral system, evolved from the, the uh, Middle Ages into this, the form we know today, in which the focus on punishing the body, torturing the body of the convict, so shifted into putting him or her in a jail and trying to treat the person, the mind, and and everything, uh, through psychology, through whatever, or sentencing. And what I found very interesting is that this not notion of controlling the bodies, um, and as you put it now, the resources still exist, and it exists on an international scale. Mainly, mainly rich countries or Western countries trying to manipulate or use resources as well. And when I look at what happened in, in the atomic age, I think there is something a step further that was made, especially in Oceania, in which the, the, uh, biopower, uh, is used, this biopower, this complete control onto the bodies of, of the people is done on population that were not enemies and they were not convicts either. But uh, we have uh, the, the, the French, uh, the US, the British as well, have disturbed and controlled the life of natives, in not, not just through colonization, but also through these uh, nuclear weapons. Well, part of that is the uh, mining of the materials and the taking away from impoverished areas, even their ability to make a profit from their own natural areas, but so by colonizing and then taking away uh, uranium ore and things like that, uh, really does still inflict this damage upon societies continuing to today. And so bringing this to light and talking about it is still an important part of what we in the West might think of as environmentalism. This is still part of that wider discussion. Yes, I'm glad you talk about the um, the uranium mining because that's a subject that I really have a, a, a heart to bring to light as well. Usually when I read books about the nuclear age, uh, we have like the usual sus suspects, Chernobyl, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and then very, very, very few uh, mention the origin, where, where does, does the, the uranium come from? It comes from the mines. And the mines also are very 
oil polluting. And there is an entire history of uranium mining, which is completely in the dark as well. And that's where I think censorship is also very good at, to keep this, these ones in, in the dark. Uranium mining, there is a, a history of uranium mining. If you think about the first times uh, uranium was was digged. It was at the time of Marie Curie, so it was in the Czech Republic. It was there was only one mine, and then there was another one in the Belgian Congo. So here we stepped onto colonization as well, and now we know the safety for the workers, but at the time we didn't, and so for decades and decades of uranium mining, not only the resources were emptied by colonial powers when they were on the African continent in particular, the French mine in Niger, the, 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 in Madagascar, and then there was the uh, American mines in, in uh, native Indian territories in the US and Canada. Uh, during all that time, all that time, not only were the uh, natives used uh, sometimes, well, actually, most of the time, uh, in all completely unsafe situation, uh, but this l- uh, left permanent scar on the landscape. So I would say a human and an ecological disaster is still there. The the uranium mine is is uh, what is very difficult about it as well is that it's. The use is dual, a double today. It's for uh, the the weapons, but it also is for power plants and for medicine. So this is one of a very specific thing. I, I, um, it took me so long, so long to find artworks that would give visibility to all these many uh, mines. The other difficulty is that they are not in one spot, like Fukushima is just Fukushima, or Chernobyl is just, it's just one spot. But the mines, they're all over in, in Australia, on, on native territories as well, Australia, on the African continent. There were some French mines as well. They have closed now, these mines, but the, the, is still radioactive. I mean, there's still some residues of radioactivity lingering. So that's what's one of the hardest part for me to give light to. Uh, in, in the article and in the book, the article is smaller and it was very hard for me to just choose one, one artwork that would speak about all the problems. But yes, I'm, I'm glad you talked about the, uh, the mind. It's probably a good time then to move on and talk about your book project as well, because as long as I've known you, it's been something that's been ongoing and something that you've struggled with at times to kind of keep up your motivation, which is a theme that's come up uh, repeatedly in this podcast about trying to maintain motivation through long projects. And perhaps there's nothing longer apart from a PhD than the process of writing a book. So could you tell us a little more about your book and then about some advice you might have for people who are looking to get into that kind of project? Um, so the book was, so the topic is nuclear technology and art. And in this book, I go from Marie Curie to Fukushima and some more, like um, some uh, institutions, particle research and laboratories that have also artists in residency. For example, but I, I and medicine, I I I take the the whole thing together. Uh, and because of this, and that was the biggest challenge. And even my editors were, you shouldn't go there, 
I tried to focus just on one thing. The difficulty was to put more than a hundred years of uh, red, like atomic age and and artworks and problems and traumas into one book. And also, it's just not the timing; is also the place because it's it's in different places all over the world. I don't think there is one one area that hasn't been contaminated actually. So I would say that because of this, and and I was um, stubborn; I didn't listen to them. I don't know if it was a good thing or not, but I didn't listen to the the advice, and I did it my way. I kept the uh, time frame and and the the large time frame and the large pace or area, uh, but I tried to find different types of focus. But because of this, then it took me longer. I would say that uh, at some points, sometimes I just wanted to give up because I wanted to have a, a personal life, a little bit of social life. Um, and then I think it's a good thing to talk about struggles as writers, I think, instead of just saying it was easy, I'll do that tomorrow all over again. It took me, I would say, about five years altogether to put it uh, from start to bottom. And what was very difficult for me as well was not only the peer editing comments sometimes, uh, which were very unfair. Or strange. And at the same time, it was the editing. Uh, so I'm not fully, because I'm not um, a um, native English speaker, then I had to have my book edited by someone. And on the one hand, it was very good because I could understand a bit better what, how to phrase better to make the um, ideas a bit more strong. So I've learned a lot from that. But on the other hand, I was disturbed by, by the amount of things that were brought into. I think the, the person editing, uh, added her, uh, his or her own references, uh, sometimes which were just like blogs. And I was very upset by that. So it took me, because the, the, the book was so long, it's 500 pages. Uh, it took me so long so long to comb through all the footnotes and all the things that were added as well. Uh, some were good, but some were just completely, to my point of view, irrelevant or, or not helping. And then there is the um, the copyrights for the images. I don't know if you want me to talk about this now or, or later. It, it would be a, no, no, it would be an interesting time to bring it up because organically that was one of the things that you had to come to like towards the end of the book you you had to select the images and then they had to go through a, a complete new round of checking and to make sure that you would be able to reproduce them in the book i don't know what got into me because i was so excited to finally bring light to all these um, traumas and and give visibility to to the victims because my focus really was the victims and the, what, what they went through i got i think maybe <laughs> A bit too excited and, and I, I ended up having 160 images or more than that, actually. And this is so, not something I would do again. It was too long. And also having to deal in, with different languages, Japanese and French and English and, and Italian. And I, at some point I, I was, it was overwhelming because what happens is that every country has uh, its own laws, copyright laws, and then every museum, 
and then every artist and then sometimes it was very expensive uh i can't tell you how much this was it was it was i mean i don't i don't, I don't want to talk about it it's just overwhelming i mean i did this out of political conviction so i i've paid for all this but it was it's it's mind-blowing and on the other hand what was very surprising is that sometimes some artists would refuse to uh, give me copyright clearance on very strange excuses like it wouldn't make sense for example i there was a, a an artist who uh, did an entire uh, volume of of like hundreds and hundreds of pages on Fukushima and he refused to be in my book because uh, he didn't want to be in a book on on nuclear technology mm-hmm. and he's like what <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sometimes some, some artists would ask me so much, like, for example, 25% of the entire sales of the book. And wow. I, <laughs> I know. And it's, it's like overwhelming. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I can do this. Where does that and, come and, from? Is that a, is that the confidence in their work or just to try and get you to say no so that they don't have to say no? I think that this, uh, I think it's just, yeah, there's a little bit of the two, I would say. Sometimes it's just that they don't, I don't think they realize the reality of the market mm. uh, of copyright images. And uh, sometimes it's just uh, greedy. I understand because I worked for an artist and, and you make, unless you sell an artwork, you don't really make money mm. or, or you speak in a conference, which is paid. So I understand that, but sometimes I I was flawed by 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 that. Some artists would, would ask me such a huge sum of money, and I'm like, I I can't. Or museum as well. The museum they are they are like sharks. <laughs> there are sharks in the water. Um, I understand why because I, again I worked in a museum, and and you need to pay the staff, and and you need to uh, pay the electricity bill, and, and yes, I understand all this. But then altogether it was complete nightmare. I I even have somebody insulting me at some point, whereas I wasn't being offensive at all. But I think she was she she was a bit old and and um, didn't someone. Maybe, uh, didn't someone accuse you of being a communist at one point? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a dirty communist, a Leninist. Oh. <laughs> I never read Lenin. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, that was... That was <laughs> that's, an, that's an interesting uh, thing to say to someone who wants to give you money. Um, yeah, yeah I, exactly. I, I, I do remember uh, when I was writing one of my papers where I had to include some images into it. It was my paper on modeling. And every single publishing house had a different standard. And I won't tell you which publishing uh, house it was I wanted to use, but they said, well, first of all, you have to talk to the person who drew the original diagram and ask him if he will relinquish the rights to the image that he drew back in the 1980s. And so I contacted this person and and they said he he lives, he lives, you know, quite a, a life of quiet solitude. So he might not get back to you immediately. But I emailed him and he, he got back to me with a very positive, of course, yes, I'm, I'm glad that people are still reading my work and of course I'll, I'll, I'll let you do it and just just let me know when you've published it. I was like, okay, great. So I went back to the publishing company He said, and I said, he, he says, fine. I was like, oh, okay, well, that'll be 150 bucks. I'm like, what now? What? <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that the the company was going to take this money and, and he wouldn't get any money back from it and he was all too 
enthusiastic for this work. And so in the end, yeah, just like you, on some occasions, I, I've buckled and said, well, the paper needs this and it doesn't make much sense without it. But, uh, and then other places will just say, you know, is it going to be, is it going to be sold? Like, no, it's just an online thing. Well, fine. Then you can, you can use it for nothing. There just, there seems to be no standard with these things. Yeah. And then there's one that was extremely difficult as well was films. Mm. Film companies, they, they, it was uh, first impossible to reach them. And then because of that, uh, there's some, some freelancers, I think, uh, who, who kind of like <laughs> sprouted a little bit everywhere around this and they ask you money uh, to, for them to actually request the image and, and manage to find an answer. So you get, you have to pay more money. To the film company, and I was like, okay, I, I want to, I want to do the films, whatever. People can find this by themselves on 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 googling. Well, there's a difference um, between like the the original copyright and then the licensing, and then uh, yeah, if it's yeah. under a certain amount, I think that there's a you, it's covered by fair use or comment. But the, the rules are so complex that I think sometimes people are just encouraged to give up. And I'm I am happy to, that you decided to push through. Based on your experiences of of writing a book, is there anything that if you knew now that you wouldn't do? For example, would you would you plan better? Would you you know, select your editor more carefully. Is there anything that you could give us advice for people who are thinking of putting their work into a book? I must say, I'm I'm quite happy with my editor, and also because they let me. They didn't try to control what I was doing. They right. gave me advice, and I took some, and I I returned others. And also, when this uh, thing about the the images came up, because I didn't realize that, that there was a contract. But for the images and whatever, it was a bit uh, difficult. They they managed to find a solution that was good for the book, and for for the topic. Uh, so I would always be grateful for that to them. But on if I could change things, it would be how I <laughs> how I planned it, and also all the copyrights images. I I will not do this ever again in my life. I don't want to go there anymore. <laughs> anymore. Just like maybe a reason, reasonable number, like 5, 10, 20, not more. The planning for me is just that uh, I thought, because I did my PhD on onto the topic, I thought I had enough material. And when I reached Japan, I realized that, that there's a lot more. And then when I, I managed to gather enough information, I sent it to the publisher. And in the making, I came across so much more, so much more. And I couldn't see the end. I think at the time when I started the book, I was under pressure to, to publish and to put things outside for, for my, my academic uh, career. So I, I went into, a, I did it a little bit in a rush, but today, if I uh, could uh, write again another book, I would just take the time to really gather all the information and then start from there instead of just being uh, in emergency all the time. Oh, but there, there's uranium mining I didn't talk about. Oh, but there's Oceania as well. And then uh, all this, it was, it was a bit hard to, to manage. I would say that I would research more, take more time to not only do the research, but also 
organize it before writing. Right. And yeah. you, you mentioned possibly writing another book. What are you working on at the moment? I don't know if I really want to talk about it because it's it's 10 times po more political than, than the nuclear things. And I'm not sure I, I'm going to go through this process. But one thing is certain is that it's, it's not about nuclear anymore. But it still has the same approach about looking at the victims rather than, than the perpetrators, the one who um, did the, the bads. So it's uh, very similar, but in fact, in the topic is a little bit different. At the moment, I have uh, gathered a lot, a lot of archive. And there, every day I change my mind. I say, oh, this is too important. We have to, do, I have to do something about it. And then the other day, I'm like, oh my God, this is too much for my shoulders. I, uh, I just want to have a normal life. <laughs> <laughs> and I just have like one drink and then watch a good movie instead of looking at all these traumas again and, and suffering and of the people. And, uh, I think, thanks God, now I'm not in, in, um, difficult place, uh, professionally. So I can take a little bit more time to judge if I'm going to go through it or not. Or, or if I do something just smaller, but then, then it would be superficial. And I, I never knew how to do superficial. Well, <laughs> that, that's, that's certainly true. I would, uh, I would give you that compliment. Oh, thank you. Thank okay. you so much. Okay. So the paper we've been talking about today is Art, Censorship and Nuclear Warfare by Dr. Gabrielle Dacamus. Thank you very much for your time, and I wish you the best of luck in your future works. Thank you for having me and for the uh, nice questions. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.